0: Hi, my name is Stephen King. I've written several motion pictures, but I want to tell you about a movie called Maximum Overdrive, which is the first one I've directed. Welcome to the Three Men in a Retrospective podcast Stephen King Retrospective. A lot of people have directed Stephen King novels and stories, and I finally decided if you want something done right, you ought to do it yourself. Join Garrett. It was my first picture as a director, and you know something? I sort of enjoyed it. Matt. I just wanted someone to do Stephen King right. And Adam. So come and spend some time with me and my friends at the Dixie Boy. As they continue their journey through King's Night Shift collection of short stories with reviews of the two Trucks film adaptations. Spend some time in the dark. All coming
1: up courtesy of Percolated Media.
0: I'm going to scare the hell out of you, and that's a promise.
1: Maximum Overdrive, released July 25th, 1986. Budget on this was $9 million. Box office, $7.4 million. Yes, it lost money. Why? Because it was directed by Stephen King. (laughs) (laughs) I am about to scare the hell out of my two co-hosts. I am joined by Mr. Matthew Goudreau. Matt, how are you doing, sir?
2: Oh my God, I'm so
1: happy to be here right now. I'm so excited. Perhaps someone who is not excited, though, is our other co-host, the one and only Adam Bunch. Adam, how are you, sir? Hello,
3: I am here to podcast the hell out of you. (laughs)
1: Matt, is it just me? It seems like we've kind of referenced this movie since we started podcasting. We would would reference this trailer. We would reference this movie every once in a while. And it was always in the back of my head to maybe start a Stephen King retrospective. And when we started, I'm just like, God, I can't wait to talk about Maximum Overdrive. Is that safe to say that we've been kind of talking about this movie forever? This movie has been the butt of jokes, and sometimes not even the butt
2: of jokes, sometimes legitimate conversation for as long as I've known you. And we have, I I call it our Mount Rushmore of movies. There is this, there is The Snowman. Oh, yes. Which is sort of in similar, that movie's been a joke amongst us since that came out. And then two other ones that we may or may not get to down the road and may or may not already be on the schedule. So for every possible reason, this has been the movie that Garrett probably has wanted to talk about the most in this King retrospective thus far. And quite frankly, in the entire 20 to 30 years, we're going to be doing this one retrospective. So he's getting his wish. This is a movie I've had thoughts on for a long time. And honestly, I didn't think it'd be something we would discuss in this format. I thought it would have taken like a a one-off Patreon or some kind of one of us having to beg and plead to do it. But lo and behold, this is what happens much like this movie itself when You don't know how to say the word no.
1: And Adam, I would assume in the 30 plus years I've known you, this movie had to have at least come up in a discussion. I know you never watched it, but have we ever mentioned this movie? Have have we ever talked about this movie? Because I know you had not seen it. I've definitely never seen
3: it. It, I know the conversations have come up, especially because I know the poster. I can't even say that I've ever seen the trailer, but I knew the taglines from it and I knew specific sentences that were called out in the trailer. So, yeah, this was definitely a point of discussion. God damn, can we wait another 30 years before I have to sit and watch it? (laughs) Somehow I've just never got around to it. And I got friends of mine, separate from you, who are just like, man, I love this movie. Boy, my husband loves this movie. I got other people that are just like, I can't believe you're going to watch this movie. So I've actually been able to go into this amazingly Spoiler-free, for the most part, for a movie that came out, what, in like the mid-80s?
1: 1986.
3: Um, 86. I can't believe that I was able to survive this long
1: without it. Oh, God. Where do we start? Let's start with that trailer. (laughs) I think that's a very good place to start. If I were 12, 13 years old, I would think that trailer would get me so excited for this movie. For the master himself, Stephen King, to come up on screen and say, I'm going to scare the hell out of you in that (laughs) cocaine-infused face of his and that voice. (laughs) I would be so, I mean, I I would be out of my mind excited. I didn't start reading Fangoria until a few years after this. I cannot believe the gall of some of the things he says in this trailer.
2: (laughs) So we could almost have a 30-minute conversation dissecting this trailer alone. So the place to start is you got to remember, even though we are not doing these movies in order of release, we're going based on his bibliography, you got to remember that we're about a decade in of his movies being adapted since Carrie back in 76. So there has been a who's who of filmmakers that have tackled Stephen King at this point. I mean, Stanley Kubrick, of all people, had done The Shining at this point. John Carpenter, David Cronenberg... Brian De Palma, Toby Hooper, these are very well-regarded genre filmmakers, and in some cases just strongly regarded filmmakers in general. So this trailer, for Stephen King to utter the words, and this is not me paraphrasing, this is his conversation in the trailer, a lot of people have tried to adapt my work, and I finally decided if you want something done right, you want to do it yourself. That—that <laughs> that, that is his... Ooh direct. Now, I don't know if that was the cocaine talking, because that should be an unofficial co-director on this movie. <laughs> I think in some way that was mostly a shot at Kubrick. I don't think that was him casting that broad of a net, because I, I can't imagine he'd have it out for any of the other filmmakers anywhere as near as much as did towards Stanley Kubrick. But it, this trailer could not have been made in any other decade besides the 80s, because it's got that season of the witch Tight yes, synthesizer I love music. music in the background. It's got Stephen King looking as cross-eyed as ever. He doesn't know which camera he's supposed to be looking into. <laughs> he's just he's rambling incoherently. And then they they always intercut what I classify as the the trailer moments of this movie. You know, they pick that titular vehicle that we see a lot throughout this movie. They show car accidents and some of the the technological mishaps. So as far as selling the movie to this demographic, which really is I'd say boys between the ages of 11 and 15, possibly the mentally disabled, you can also include that (laughs) as well, you are witnessing something that I would compare to an M. Night Shyamalan level of ego trip and an unchecked ego trip at that, because it's not like anyone on a movie that Stephen King is adapting one of his own short stories and is directing if you're a studio hotshot or, hell, if
1: you're a Screen a writer in your own right or just a PA.
2: Who are you to tell Stephen King no?
1: Yeah, especially in nineteen eighty six. I mean, his stuff was making it was flying off the bookshelves. I mean, his movies weren't really making money. And this is where we come into how King got involved in directing this. Because Dino de Laurentes, the producer, we've mentioned Dino's name a number of times already in this retrospective, the movies that he was making with King were not making money. Cat's eye, Firestarter. They both lost money. So Dino Derlantis is the one who went to King. King had already written this script because Trucks, you know, we'll talk about the short story, but that is one of King's favorite stories in that book. And he had already written a script and Dino Derlantis said, you know what? The star of your movies is you. I want to sell a movie based on your name and your name alone. I want you to direct this. Now King, he had studied Teague. He had known that he was going to be directing when they were making Cat's Eye. We talked about that in that show. And so he did a little bit of studying on this, but he said something really interesting in interviews I've read since where he said... He did what he read Alfred Hitchcock did, which was plan out every single thing and pretty much storyboard every single shot that he was going to do. But then he realized he's much better when he's on the fly. And we'll talk about the making of this. I mean, there are rumors of a co-director on this movie. But basically, what he has said since, he has been humbled by this experience. And he has said, Somebody asked him, why haven't you directed since Maximum Overdrive? He said, have you seen Maximum Overdrive? (laughs) You know, he has said that the directing experience was a terrible one. And let's not forget, I mean, we've mentioned it a couple times. We cannot be sued for saying this because he has been out and said it. He was coked out of his mind on this movie. He was drunk every day. PAs have said that he would come to set to meetings at 8.30 in the morning. He'd already have about four or five beers in him, Looking disheveled. He would be rejected on the lot because people he looked so disheveled. He didn't look like he was any bit of a professional ready to direct this movie. And he would have to talk himself in. So he was not in a really good frame of mind in this movie. And that's not to say he was abusive or anything. Everybody has really good things to say about him personally. But maybe he was not the right guy to take these directing reins. (laughs) You call
2: it him getting smarter. I call that just, or I don't know, whatever words you just humbled. used. I just humbled. It, he's, yeah, humbled. He's sober now. <laughs> so yeah, that's He could look back and say, oh yeah, that, that was a questionable decision on my part. And I, I think another thing that emphasized this movie getting made in the fashion that it did is The Road Warrior. Mm. You look at that movie as far as being a landmark for stunt work and vehicular basically demolition derbies in the most artistic way imaginable i think that maybe that gave king some credence to try his hand at this but it always begs the question i get that this is a story that he likes a lot but he never talked about directing any of his other adaptations that's at that point so why would this be the one that made him say all right i'm gonna pass my hand at this and just see what happens
1: well like i said that that was nino's idea Dino was the one who was like, you know what? I want to sell your, this movie based on your name. You need to direct this. And it needs to be said, the first time I saw this movie was I was sick from school. I had stayed home sick from school. And my mom had allowed me to rent one movie for the day. I was in the video store, and I looked, and boom, here was this maximum overdrive, and it says on the cover, written, directed by Stephen King. Adam, when you posted that you were watching this movie, that shot that you posted on your Facebook, that's the exact movie box I had. I saw, and I was like, oh, my God, this is going to be incredible. Wow i took it home and i'll just say within five minutes i knew exactly what i was i'm like wait a minute this isn't scary he's directing this like this is what directing is (laughs) and i you know honestly i don't know if it was my illness or what but i don't think i made it through that movie on the first try i think i had to rewind it three or four times i fell asleep a number of times while watching it so that was my first time matt what was your first time watching this i would imagine this would be something where you were just in college or something you're like let's just rent this for a night middle school middle school
2: I don't know how I secured a copy of this. Oh, I know exactly what happened. It's a funny story. I was listening to a podcast even back then, and they were talking about movies that are so bad it's good. Those are the kind of movies I go out of my way to watch. I think I've seen more shitty movies in an objectively terrible way than the two of you combined. (laughs) So I was sitting there listening. And they mentioned a scene, which is now sort of a, a hallmark of this movie. If you ask anyone who's seen it, what stands out? Pause so you all can think about what that scene might be. Mm-hmm. But I, I heard about it. I'm like, okay, I have to check out this movie. I saw the clip on YouTube, and someone had uploaded. Of course, this is back in the day where YouTube was far less monopolized. Mm-hmm. You could get away with posting a full movie as long as you were clever about it, or you put misprints in your video titles, mm-hmm. or... you air the image, all that kind of stuff. So I managed to watch the whole thing when I should have been studying or doing something more productive with my time. I was so infatuated by, by watching it because I spent the whole time saying, how did this get made? And being the age I am now and knowing all the details, it's sort of come full circle. But I had an outright blast and I was not at the age where I was drinking or anything, but I had imagined if I had seen this in college, this would have been one of those quintessential stoner movies that I just have on in a loop in the background because there is a very famous band attributed to this movie as well that makes for good listening. (laughs)
1: <laughs> definitely good for stoner parties that's for sure so Dino is making this movie and he tells King when he some of the sets that he's using he tells King he goes you can't shoot here that long because I have another movie shooting down the on the same set I mean this is how cheap Dino was I mean he would use the same set for multiple movies at the same time and King's like oh really which one's that and Dino goes well I don't know if it's gonna make any money but it's called Blue Velvet <laughs> and King's just like oh sounds like a provocative title hope it goes well <laughs> could you imagine King and David Lynch hanging out on <laughs>
2: On the same set. I'm thinking of King. Hey, <laughs> exactly. Of, you know, even Tony Montana would talk, tap out at some point.
1: <laughs> and there was one other person hanging around the set. He was a good friend of King's, and he's somebody we will be talking about further down in this retrospective. A gentleman by the name of George A. Romero. And supposedly, there are quite a few scenes that are ghost-directed by Romero. Oh, Yeah. And you could definitely tell. There, there are a couple scenes where people are like, oh, my God. Like, that's so Romero. And I think the one shot of the trailer that is actually kind of scary, because a lot of it, this movie is just campy trash. It's just, I mean, whether we give it a high score or not, we can all admit that there's just so much campy trash going on here. But the one scene that kind of scared me was a guy coming out of a sewer reaching for a small boy. And I was like, oh my God, that is so Romero, you know, (laughs) but that hasn't been confirmed or denied by anybody. But that is the rumor that this is, there's quite a few scenes of this also directed by George A. Romero. Boys, we have talked about the background of this enough. Adam, I'm sure is digging in his heels, waiting to attack this movie full tilt after watching it for the first time. What do you guys say? We dive right into this plot. Headed into overdrive. (laughs) Headed into overdrive. Here we go. So we open up. We see a green mist around Earth as a Ridley Scott type subtitle about a comet brushing through. Hits the screen. Ugh. (laughs) Already. (laughs)
3: Already. One, no, the ugh started when I saw uh, Dino De Laurentiis' name come up on the screen. Uh Uh-oh. The only name I want to see attached to De Laurentiis is Giada. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) But I didn't even get that. I got frickin' David Lynch's Dune with this frickin' title, like, with these words up here on the screen. Oh, my God, I could not believe this was being introduced this way.
1: Well, Matt, how many times have we mentioned every single time we do a horror series? We mention it all the fucking time. The less you know, the better. He has bookended this movie with two subtitles that, really, this movie's already dumb trash. Why are you trying to explain it?
2: Yeah, this is like trying to make... Beef Wellington out of a McDonald's hamburger. <laughs> why Why are you trying to, and if anything, this is something we'll talk about with Stephen King a lot. I At least I mentioned this with the Shining miniseries. He over-explains the supernatural a lot.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And this is not even an over-explanation. Any explanation is too much. It doesn't fit this movie because the, the movie doesn't bother throughout its runtime explaining it. Or having people really theorize about it outside of just bookending it with text, which I always find to be a lazy piece of screenwriting. But, oh my god, you guys said freaking David Lynch is doing I was thinking this is like straight out of Masters of the Universe.
3: Oh, wow. Speaking of Dino. Well,
1: no, that was actually Golden Goldbliss. Oh, you're right,
3: you're yeah. right. You're right. Yeah.
1: yeah. Different. Oh, man, maybe one day. I, that's another one I would love to talk about one day. That is a good call, though. Very yeah, much. Yeah, that is a very good call. We cut to Wilmington, North Carolina, as we see a guy come up to an ATM that says, fuck you <laughs> on the bank. And uh... This is Adam as an ATM for student games. <laughs> <kids. laughs>
3: I feel completely validated by this machine. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> now is it talking to the audience or is it adam just saying it to stephen king himself he walks up and he starts getting upset that instead of spitting out his money this atm machine is calling him an asshole now this guy is played by this film's director stephen king and i remember watching this as a kid and just laughing hysterically As an adult, I'm seeing the guy who on the trailer right before I watched this told us that he was going to scare the hell out of us. But the opening scene of said movie is of him getting called an asshole by an ATM machine that also says, fuck you. (laughs) Not the way you want to start your scary movie. But you know what? I will say, and I said this during Cat's Eye, I think the comedic side of King is a good side of King. And if he wasn't so full of pomp and circumstance when it came to that trailer, you know, at least he's making me laugh. And you know what? I am laughing oh, uh, this movie is hysterical. To me, this this movie, for me, to p- sort of put my cards
2: on the table, this is my Catwoman. And <laughs> nice. What I mean by that is, unlike Catwoman, which I think was a movie that was made with a certain amount of cynicism, borderline ignorance, I think this is a movie that was made with sincerity, that was masked by a white powdery substance, which <laughs> tends to derail your judgment and make you act irrationally. The trailer is a tremendous... Disservice, as great as it is, because it sets you up for a type of movie that Maximum Overdrive never attempts to make a pretense to be. It is not scary whatsoever, in my humble opinion. Maybe if you're considerably younger, I'm talking like seven or eight, and you catch this on cable, maybe there's some things that'll that'll get to you. And certainly there's some disturbing imagery. If you pause the screen, because, oh my god, this movie is edited by Edward Scissorhands. (laughs) Like you said, Garrett, it's very much, this is the comedic side of King, more so than him trying to be scary. And whether or not you find this funny or not is ultimately going to define how you enjoy watching it.
1: Well, that leads us to the opening licks of the soundtrack, which is done in its entirety by ACDC. (laughs) Because when I want to scare someone...
3: the hell did they
1: (laughs) I use AC/DC.
3: <laughs> How the hell did they score ACDC for this freaking, not just a couple needle drops, but for the entire sound? Ch- this is Queen doing yes. freaking Flash Gordon. ACDC for the entire thing. That one, that is complete 80s freaking moment in time, but how and why because that just blew me away
1: well they had a meeting king had a meeting with acdc and he was going to want to secure a song for it and he was just like why don't you guys just score the entire film and they agreed to it and you know what and even when you hear that that psycho type string done with guitars that's acdc as well that's angus young doing psycho so this isn't just acdc doing the songs this is acdc doing the entire soundtrack but you know what mm-hmm. if you see in the mid-80s if you saw a truck rolling down the street chances are you would hear acdc blasting from that truck so i can kind of see where he's coming from with it so speaking of let, let's address the uh, lightning bolt currents in the room number one von scott
2: had passed away a few years before so the band was going through sort of their reconfiguration. So who knows? Maybe that might have played a factor. But two, how do you have a movie that, scored by ACDC, involves trucks in the interstate, and Highway to Hell is never used? I thought of that,
3: too. Thank you.
2: <laughs> they use everything else. Like, stuff they wrote for the Like, I'm pretty sure Who Made Who was written for this movie, how is Highway to Hell not of Hell? Vince McMahon used it for SummerSlam 98, and that was a decade plus after this movie.
1: <laughs> I don't know. The only thing I can think of is, like you said, Bon Scott had died, and maybe they didn't want to use anything from that era. They just wanted to use their current stuff at that time. But, yeah, I, I don't know. I thought of that, too. At least use it for the yen credits, for Christ's sake. That blew me away as well. So after the opening credits, we see the drawbridge have a life of its own and everything from a watermelon truck to Donald Trump's ex, Marla Maples, just getting smashed as a result of it. Now, this drawbridge, uh, we also saw it in Cat's Eye. This is the same one Dino used for that as well. But again, I am going to say, at this point, I'm not scared, but I have a smile on my face. Adam, you watching this for the first time, are you at least laughing at the stuff, at the carnage going on on screen, including an ACDC truck getting toppled, by the way? (laughs)
3: The ACDC truck made me laugh because, of course, they had to put that in there. I mean, Uh it just had to be the the band on a bus. What cracked me up is the guys are talking up there in the booth, and they're talking about baseball and home runs. And this just shows Stephen King fucking has no idea about sports. Oh, man, one of those home runs must have even been 250 feet. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, 250 feet is a... Not even a long fly ball. game. Like, I don't know why that stuck out to me, but it was such a like a sold lie that was written for somebody that obviously does not know baseball.
1: Well, he loves he loves Ugh. the Red Sox. He does go to a lot of Red Sox games. He does he does have a few it, books that reference you know history of the Red Sox. But this, don't forget, this guy was on cocaine and drug and alcohol the entire time. Go ahead. Even
3: the monster is further out than two hundred fifty feet.
1: <laughs> You're right. <laughs>
3: Fuck. I'm starting to laugh, but I did not watch the full trailer because I didn't want to. I watched, like, 30 seconds of it and went, man, this trailer feels kind of spoofy. <laughs> and that was it. Now, as I was getting this, though, I'm like, okay, scares, master of horror, he's got to do it himself, and I am waiting for anything that makes me think that this is something other than, like, some 80s spoof type of movie because that is the only thing I'm feeling at this point. <laughs>
1: All right. So we cut to a truck with a Green Goblin mask on it. Now, even people who have no idea about the existence of this film know that there is a Green Goblin mask in this movie. Adam, you've been aware of that, correct?
3: Oh, there's an image that I knew, and it was that Green Goblin mask and that Green Goblin mask on fire. Yes. Like, like you show me that image, I could have told you exactly what it was from, no questions asked.
1: Funny story about this. So this was not a King idea. This was Dino De Laurentiis. He really wanted like some scary mask on the front of this truck. While this is something Disney wouldn't even allow today, I mean, there's no way they would allow this. In 1986, people forget Marvel was looking for anything to drive its stock up as they were going bankrupt. And the funny thing about this is that this wasn't even the original plan. Dino wanted Darth Vader. Guess who wasn't looking to get his stock up? (laughs) (laughs) so green yeah. goblin was the second choice and if you check the credits it does say "used with permission so marvel said yes to it but you know what sometimes this thing is kind of ominous those eyes glow red every once in a while i mean it doesn't do anything per se it does it, they call it the leader later on but matt it doesn't really come off as a leader does it i i guess default it's the
2: mascot for the movie in a lot of ways but I want to go back to the opening comedy of errors, basically, because it feels like something straight out of a Zucker Brothers film, mm-hmm. where the watermelons are more destructive than the bridge going up. There's that quick shot of the guy sliding off the motorcycle and into the water. Yes. <laughs> where, yes. Where the, the physics of that just makes him... <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I'm not alone. Yeah, it's it's one of my favorite hilariously bad openings. As far as the Green Goblin truck goes, we got to remember, yeah, you mentioned Marvel was going bankrupt. They were looking for any way to make money. The funny thing is that Norman Osborn was dead in the comics for over a decade at this point. He was the most popular Spider-Man villain, only because they couldn't find any other great villains for quite a long time. I mean, this is when, like, Harry Osborn's psychologist was the Green Goblin. I appreciate the Hobgoblin had started right before this, so it was good for brand recognition, but... You know, it wasn't a great time if you were a Green Goblin fan. They should have picked Dr. Octopus.
1: No, but I do remember there was an Atari game that came out around this time, too, where Green Goblin was the villain that you had to get past on a building. So he was still, as you mentioned, this was the only real big Spider-Man villain that was playing at that time. And yes, we will eventually get to Spider-Man 18 years down the road. So you're you're right. But for me, I don't know, this mask, I wouldn't call it scary, but at least it's kind of ominous. It's even behind King in that trailer, too. Like, you see the eyes glow red even behind him there. So it's a funny image for this movie. And like I said, if there's anything people remember about this movie, it's that mask. So this truck heads to a truck stop to get some gas. And as the driver walks in, the woman working the register is saying the register isn't working. Now, years ago, I used to work at a truck stop like this. And as simple as King is making these people seem, (laughs) by the way, this is exactly how they are. <laughs> and we're going to see this a lot when we talk King. You know, we get to The Mist. Lots of people in small places, and they have to kind of band together to get rid of the evil. Matt, this is a trope that he does a lot, isn't it?
2: does. And again, we've talked about this with the last few movies, that these adaptations more so feel like primers for stuff he'll do later. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, this concept is The Mist, except... The movie does not spend any time on the characters being overly paranoid or getting on each other's nerves, because King is not preoccupied with that. King's mantra for this is, I am just going to have fun and just blow as much shit up as I humanly can, and all of my characters are just country bumpkins or stereotypes. I mean, look, King sometimes, he's not above the heavy-handed He covers all of his bases in this movie. Like, even the white people in this movie are portrayed as these simple, Mm like I said, country bumpkins that don't know their hand from their ass. There's a scene later on that just kills me every single time. That is the definition of just Darwinism in action.
1: Adam, what about you? What are you feeling like when we get introduced to the people at the Dixie Cup?
3: I'm glad we're getting somewhere. I'm assuming these are people that are going to be fleshed out. No. And that are going to have some type of, interesting story behind them? No. And that we're going to care about throughout the rest of this movie? No. So it's one of those where we're here and we're being introduced to people and hey, we get one person that we recognize here in a bit. But just like you said, I'm looking at this going, hey, wait a minute. I know what this trope is because I've seen it in movies that he's done later, even though I hadn't seen this movie at this point. But I could kind of tell that, okay, we're going to get a bunch of people in one area and we're going to have evil outside. To me, I'm looking at this and I went, shit. I saw Legion. I saw that movie Mm. in the diner where angels come from the outside. Ah. (laughs) In fact, the diner looks just like this. I know where we're going, and I'm like, okay, let's see how I feel when you get me there.
1: So we're seeing a pinball machine and a vending machine. They're going haywire, as does the gas nozzle that was filling up the Green Goblin rig as it squirts in the attendant's eye.
2: That's the scene I was talking about. Yeah. (laughs) I'm like...
1: How did you think this was going to end any other way? Exactly. <laughs> the 10 se-
3: The ten seconds he's looking at that thing, I'm waiting for it to squirt him in the face.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, it should be said, Matt, and we didn't mention this in the beginning here, but you read the short story. I read it for preparation for this as well. I read it a few times. It's a 16-page story, and in that story, it's basically Nine of Living Dead with trucks where trucks are going haywire. Here, we have everything from bulldozers to soda machines to pinball machines going crazy. And that is a big problem I have with this so-called script that King has in front of him and what he's directing. There are no rules here. What can go crazy? What cannot go crazy? Why isn't the car that has Yearly Smith in it later run them down? Matt, are you in agreement with me that the rules here need to be established? It's cocaine logic. You okay. <laughs> would uh, 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 almost quote Joel Silver and go,
2: doesn't matter, move on.
1: Yeah. So we're seeing Pat Hingle again. Welcome back to the Three Men in Retrospective podcast, Pat Hingle.
2: And for the record, he gets more lines in this movie than the four bad
1: combined. <laughs> you are not wrong. Then we're seeing Emilio Estevez. Now, here's a guy who was really riding a wave of success coming off The Breakfast Club. But believe it or not, King did not want him in this movie. You guys have any guesses? Yeah, he wanted the boss. Yes, he wanted Bruce Springsteen. Wow. <laughs> but again, like George Lucas, he said no wisely. And SFS has come out recently and said that he is not very proud of having this on his resume. He did say oh, he shit. He talked to his mom about this movie one time and his mom was like, "Why did you make that movie?" He goes, "Well, I wanted to work with King. I wanted to work for him." His mom was like, "Why didn't you just pave his driveway?" <laughs> oh god. <Yeah. laughs> I loved Emilio SFS around this time, but man, he does not stand out in this at all. What a bad performance he gives in this movie. Well,
3: I think giving a bad performance is kind of what was required to be in this
1: movie.
3: (laughs) (laughs) But Emilio, he, um, it's amazing how much he looks like a young version of his father in this movie. Yes. To me, he really looks like a early twenties version of Martin Sheen, but, I recognize him He looks like he's about to do What is it Minute work Yes You know on a lot next door <laughs> It's a far cry from young guns I'll tell you that
1: So as Estevez's character of Bill Robinson is getting angry About the hours he's worked against And what he's actually getting paid An electric knife comes to life With the safety on it If you look close by the way <laughs> And attacks the waitress Who says it came alive and bit her <laughs> This scene You know what If it wasn't played as such camp I would actually get kind of scared by this because Electric knives have always scared the fuck out of me. Every time my dad would pull one out when he was getting ready to carve that turkey, it would scare me. I'm like, oh, my God, that's kind of scary. But, of course, King is not playing it for that here.
3: But that's the problem. Is it supposed to be? If I walked into this knowing that, okay, this entire movie is going to be campy fun, I might have been looking at it and been having a completely different experience as it's going along. But here, you know, and we're, what, about 15 minutes in at this point maybe, and I'm just like, what the hell kind of tone is this movie setting? Yeah, I can't believe that at any point he actually thought that this was a scary movie, ever. And then when I went back and watched the trailer afterwards, I'm like, okay, well, fuck. They didn't really try to sell it that way because the trailer seems, when I watched the full thing, pretty damn spoofish.
1: It is. Uh, but you know what? When he wow. points at the camera and says, I'm going to scare the hell out of you, it's a promise. You're coming here expecting something scary. <laughs>
3: Oh, it is, yeah. Yeah. What he told me I'm going to watch is not what I fucking sat and watched. Yeah, you're right.
1: Meanwhile, someone is fried in the arcade room, which is looking like the Tron game from hell.
2: Not just anybody. You know who that is, right? Yeah, that's the
1: guy from Breaking Bad. It's Giancarlo Esposito.
2: What does he do when everything breaks down? He steals shit. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Not the most flattering of portrayals, is it? We then cut to a little league game, and as the coach goes to get sodas to help celebrate a victory, this soda machine also comes to life and launches one can at his balls, as well as three others at his face.
3: This kind of cracked me up. I couldn't believe. It. And when his head is down there, at least you know, at least they're drawing a picture. You know exactly what's going to happen. Because when he goes down and he looks at that machine, Mm -hmm. there's no doubt that he's going to get one right in the fucking dome. And he does hard. Like, it does some damage. That scene actually kind of cracked me up. I liked it.
1: And I love when it's launching at the other kids, too. And they're running. And the cans are going every which way. Like, you would think something like this wouldn't have aim, right? But it's aiming at the fucking kids as they're running away.
2: Well, at least now all the kids are eye level with the slot. So to me, that's their fair game. (laughs) And that thing's got incredible rage because there's a kid who's like halfway across the field and he gets hit right in the ass. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: So we didn't see a bulldozer as this kid gets away on his bike and drives away as the bulldozer attacks.
2: And this is the scene when this kid gets run over. Okay. Because as you imagine, George Romero is
1: close friends with Stephen
2: King. King showed him the scene where they, there was supposed to be a, a head filled with blood. That would explode, but the censors said no fucking way. But he nevertheless showed it to George Romero, who then proceeded to get physically ill. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Stephen King is unafraid to to kill kids. That's the one thing I'll say
1: about his writing. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. We cut to another set of characters driving in a car, and I'm going to say right now, we haven't even been introduced to all of them yet, but this movie has way too many fucking characters. (laughs) way too many we're seeing a guy who can't keep his hands to himself asking a gal he picked up named brett down the highway and hearing a news report to get off the highway and as he puts his hand on her leg she says if he doesn't get it off her leg he would be wiping his ass with a hook the next time he had to take a dump interesting note here when dino saw the dailies of this chick and saw her in jeans in this scene he immediately told king she needs to be wearing less clothes So that's why we have a very weirdly inserted scene of her saying, I need to get into something more comfortable. And she gets into shorts and a tank top. (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) Gotta love Hollywood in the 80s. Now, as a fight ensues between these two, she tells them to eat her shorts, (laughs) which which would be Uh used by another actress in this later. The Green Goblin rig revs up and rolls toward the both of them. We then cut to yet another set of characters, one played by Yearly Smith of Lisa Simpson fame, and the funny thing about her is she is deeply ashamed of this movie. <laughs> she will sign anything Simpsons that you have, but the second you put this DVD in front of her, she freezes up. <laughs> she she hates that this is on her fucking resume.
3: God damn, it's taken a long time to get these characters in sets of two.
1: I don't understand
2: why... This movie is, you know, because it's sort of setting this up like a slasher movie where people are just going to be getting killed left and right. But it really doesn't have that mm-hmm. much of a, bo- as high of a body count as you would expect no. with this premise. So it kind of makes all the different introductions pointless, but also comical because some of them they do more with than others. And one, they just, it's also obligatorily King had to put in a romance between Amelia Estevez and that other chick. But it's played straight and that makes it funnier because
1: it doesn't belong in anywhere the same stratosphere as this movie it might as well be with the comet well funny thing about that that's another thing king didn't want dino insisted on it dino said you need romance you need romance between these two characters and that's why these actors aren't into it king isn't into it and yeah those scenes have zero chemistry like these two have nothing between them So, the couple find a dead body as they're driving, as well as a truck that attacks them. Meanwhile, Bill heads into the Green Goblin rig to check on it. He doesn't find anything inside of it, but as he checks the outside, the controls come on. But he is rescued by Brett, who says that he's kind of (laughs) cute.
2: This is also one of my favorite technical goofs in the movie, because there's that part where Emilio goes in the driver's side, and he opens the curtain to see the jack-in-the-box. The The problem is, with the way the camera rig is set up, you can see the frickin' jack-in-the-box... Before he opens the curtain.
1: <laughs> I love technical goose like that. <laughs> so we see this kid. He's riding a bicycle and seeing these dead bodies. An ice cream truck with a tricycle in a grill. <laughs> which is such a crazy image. And as you said, Matt, he is not scared to kill kids, man. You could tell this ice cream truck has killed kids because it's got a tricycle with blood on its fucking grill. And then eventually he's attacked by a lawnmower. First of all, very self-referential as we will be covering Lawnmower Man later on this year. And that's also one of his stories. But one thing that happened here that really proved King's inadequacies as a director, King was advised that he did not need the blades to be left on this lawnmower. Because the audience wasn't going to see them. But King was insistent. They had to stay on to shoot this scene. And basically they had a board in front of it so that when it hit the board, it would stop so that it doesn't go close to the kid. So they cut to them shooting the scene. The lawnmower hits that wood block put down to control the lawnmower. And a bunch of these wood chips go flying and one hits the DP right in the fucking eye. And it caused him to eventually lose his eye. Now, this guy had shot almost 100 movies at this point, And you think King would listen to somebody like that. But I'm not sure if it was the cocaine talking. This guy would go on to finish the film. But he would also eventually sue King and the studio. And they eventually settled out of court and would never get his eye back. And he kept working until he died in 2001. But, again, when King says that this was a terrible experience shooting this film, he was not lying. This is shit that comes up with directors all the time. You need to make these onset decisions. And this was not the right one.
2: It's one of the unfortunate problems of show business. And who knows, maybe if King wasn't coked out of
1: his mind, it probably wouldn't have happened. Yeah, because he was told that the blades would not be shown on camera. You have no reason to keep these blades on this lawnmower. We can just shoot the lawnmower without them. And he's like, nope, nope, I need to see them. Bad decision, sir. Meanwhile, we're seeing the guy from the car earlier selling a Bible in the truck stop, which is definitely a weird commentary by King about the hypocrisy of religion. And Matt, this comes up. Repeatedly In King Works
2: I mean we talked about it In every single instance Of Carrie That's a big part of the mist Yep So so yeah And I also love how He throws all that shit Out the window As soon as his car Is trashed He's like Alright out of my
3: way bitch (laughs) At this point I want stuff to get moving A little bit Mm -hmm. I'm just I'm God I'm waiting for these Introductions to be done
1: What's funny is This is an 87 minute movie And you are saying You want it to move along Quicker
3: Oh my god It is When I looked at the time, I'm like, sweet, frickin' hour-and-a-half movie. This can't be that bad because it's going to move at a quick clip. No problem. Folks, I was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I was very, very wrong. I think somehow Stephen King's cocaine didn't speed things up. It slowed everything down.
1: Well, a director is in charge of pacing with a film. If you say a film feels... Like, it's a fun time. That's all due to the direction. A script can be as good as a script is. But I know that a director is the one who is in charge of that. King is not doing much as far as pacing goes here. We've we've said that the scares are non-existent. This movie, it's a real crash course in somebody saying, I know I can direct because everyone else does it. And when it gets time, it's not as easy as it looks, folks. Trust me. (laughs) So someone else is hit by a truck. As that truck goes and takes out the salesman's car... And a salesman is taken out by the Green Goblin. Well, we think it's taken, he's taken out. We'll see later that he's not. And I do like, again, this Green Goblin with its eyes glowing red. It's pretty cool. I kind of dig how it subtly does that every once in a while.
2: Now, I also love how King put Pennywise on the back of his truck, too. <laughs> yes. So, so it's, you got a front and rear of nightmare fuel for kids. Exactly.
1: <laughs> Brett eventually changes as the body is hauled out. And each and every truck at the Dixie Boy starts surrounding the place and not letting them out. Or anybody else in. And this is a big part of that story. Again, 16-page story. And it's basically these trucks holding these people hostage. And no other electronics are involved. Like I said, this is just the trucks talking here. By the way, what would it say? 58 cents a gallon? Yes. Oh, my God. Do I crave those days again?
3: <laughs> Whenever there's a movie and it's somebody's filling up gas and it's actually a price. I can't help but look. And, folks, I live in the Bay Area of California that is responsible for skewing the national average up an extra dollar. <laughs> yes. And I paid five fifteen when I freaking had to fill up after work today, and that's down a lot. Oh, oh the good old days. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Meanwhile, Kurt and Connie, they're seeing traffic head the other way, and the radio is all static right before a truck heads right in the middle of the road, and Connie screams again. Boy, all the screaming this chick does in this movie. <laughs>
2: I thought we weren't covering Temple of Doom for another
1: six months. <laughs> <laughs> Spielberg's duel, this is not, but the truck is pulled off the road and explodes. And there's another thing I can say about this movie. God damn, there are a lot of explosions in it. Kurt pulls to the Dixie boy and says that he's going to drive right through the wall that the trucks have made. But as he's driving, he gets clipped and they're having to get out of the car. And Connie proves to be one of the most annoying characters in film history. This chick does not shut. Up. And I know this is how she was directed to be, but fuck man.
3: I had to make a concerted effort to keep putting my phone down and pay attention to the screen. I'm completely freaking checked out of this movie at this point. It's an effort to keep going. I i oh, I'm just I'm bored. I'm just I don't have an urgency with anybody. The story doesn't have me interested. I am just bored out of my mind.
1: You're not having at least a little bit of trashy fun here?
3: No, nope, I'm not. I wish I was, but you know why? Because it's not dirty 80s enough for me mm. to, to enjoy that. It feels too PG-13 80s. There's no titillation going on to make me at least get my attention every now and then. It's just, no, I'm having, there is no joy in Mudville.
2: I'm having fun. Mostly because I was thinking about, I wonder how Adam is feeling at this
1: point. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta be honest, I was thinking the same thing as well
2: i i pictured him in, a, in his house having that
1: all work and no
2: play equivalent in his little picking, <laughs> or it's just the same sentence over and over saying fuck you garrett fuck you garrett
3: i felt like paul being strapped down to a freaking bed not being able to move <laughs> for a movie we'll discuss in a couple years
1: yep Meanwhile, Bubba comes out, this is a Pat Hingles character, he comes out with an entire arsenal, which doesn't seem wise to have while being surrounded by gas. <laughs> this whole arsenal. And he takes out a truck with it. Again, more more just exploitive explosions going on here.
2: And also what do what do white trash business owners have? Hordes of guns in yep. their
1: basement. Yep. <laughs> And more just terrible chemistry attempts with Esteves and Harrington. You know, the more I look at this, I'm just like, I wish King would have hired another writer. And I know this love story wasn't his idea, but to try to flesh this out, it would take like another writer to kind of work on this a little bit. Maybe get Romero to do it. I don't know. But I got to say, <laughs> this love story attempt rivals that of another we are going to be talking about later this year that takes place in the galaxy far, far away. <laughs>
3: <laughs> there's nothing that makes them feel like they should be together. Uh-uh. There's stuff set up that just doesn't pay off. You know, it's like Estevez being told to work nine hours, but only clock in for eight. You think there's going to be some big comeuppance? Eh, there's not. It's a line that's there because, ha-ha, business people are dicks. Get it?
1: An airplane comes down as the boy makes his way across the street. And then Bill has a conversation with Joey in the men's room, and of course King has to insert sound effects of farting and toilet plopping as Joey reveals the arsenal that Bubba has. This comedy, man. I gotta say, I was laughing though. Matt, what about you?
2: This is some of the worst. Uh, I don't know what you call it, like audio work, foley work. Yeah, this is some of the worst foliage <laughs> since YouTube was founded. <laughs> like, it, like at that level of. <laughs> it of when like. Mystery Science Theater was first starting yes. out they hadn't like refined it yet. So the only things they could think of were putting in, like, really out-of-place fart sounds. <laughs> yes. Except here it was done with sincerity. Uh,
1: the next shot is of Bill and Brett. They're going in the Arsenal room and getting in a little war of words with Bubba, who tells Bill that with one call, he can have him hauled out of here. Yeah, good luck with that, sir. And, of course, we have the what I call Phoebe Kate scene. Bill reveals what Bubba was talking about, and guess what? It adds nothing to the story, and Brett just doesn't give a shit, as the next time we see them, they're in bed together playing Quentin Tarantino's favorite game of footsies. I love when characters come out like this in the this mid-80s. They, be- they come out with these stories of why they are where they are. Brett comes to the brilliant conclusion that all they have to do is stay alive for one more set of hours while the comet passes overhead. How do they know that exactly? Yeah, we... yeah that was my Thank next you. question. <laughs> <laughs> that was my very next question. Meanwhile, the waitress goes apeshit as she heads outside yelling, we made you, as electricity does what it does in my casino during the winter storm. Just goes out. <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're seeing everybody grab a bite to eat with Connie just laughing her ass off and Bill once again trying to make some on-screen chemistry happen. Now, this dude with Lisa Simpson here, he's fingering her, right? That's what I took it as anyway.
2: Yeah, it gives my right words a whole new meaning.
1: Yeah. <laughs> We cut to outside with the boy Hiding in a sewer pipe As yet another set of trucks drives on by Connie tells Curtis not to make her A widow on her wedding day As Bill tells Bubba that he's one of the biggest Fuckheads he's ever met in his life Because, you know That's going to get us on his side. More suspenseful ACDC music plays as they go underground and the terrible smell and claustrophobia take over. And the boy finds another of what he thinks is a dead body. And this scene is what a lot of people think, again, is a sure sign that Romero directed a lot of this film. But this is another thing with King. Going through sewers, right, Matt? We'll be seeing that when we get to Shawshank. And it. And it. Yeah. Good call.
2: I mean, hell, I was thinking of fucking Halloween ends because I saw that recently. Oh yeah, I thought Michael- yeah. Michael Myers is going to be down there.
1: <laughs> Bill and Kurt they find the boy, as do the trucks, but they make it back under the sewer in time. Bill, who must have changed his red-stained, sewer-laden shirt into a brand new white one when they came out of the sewer, is hesitant to tell the, oh, the boy. Co- the I continuity know.
2: errors in this movie are Stevie Wonder would notice them. <laughs>
1: And these are normally things I don't notice. I'm usually in the midst of a story when I'm watching these movies, and I am bad at continuity errors. I would be a bad script supervisor on a set because I just don't notice him. But yeah, even I notice. Why is his shirt still nice and white after he gets out of the sewer? (laughs) He's hesitant to tell the boy that his dad didn't make it out alive. Bill takes out another truck with a rocket launcher. (laughs) Yes, I just said that with more huge explosions. As Bubba tells the kid no uncertain terms that his dad is dead. We cut to morning, and now the stakes have been raised as here comes an army machine gun on a car as well as a bulldozer.
3: What and what? What the? F- <laughs> I, you know what? I raised my head. <laughs> I'm sure you did. <laughs> did I miss? Why does an M60 suddenly mount? What the? F- bloop, bloop, bloop. Nope, I didn't miss something. Nope. All right. You didn't. The editors, the editor got into King's Tash.
1: Yep. <laughs> They head right into the Dixie Cup as Bubba fires the rocket launcher, which really pisses off the machine gun, and it fires round after round inside the place and takes a lot of these characters out. Again, this is added straight for the movie because there's no gun that's sentient, and if there was, wouldn't the rocket launcher be sentient too?
2: These are the kind of questions you think when you're not on cocaine. Yeah, exactly.
3: (laughs) You know what? It's also not electronic in any way.
1: Yeah, it's true. Wanda, the waitress, she grabs a rocket launcher and is taken out by the gunner. And a Morse code is being sent by the army car, and it says that they want to be fed as the powers turn back on. And Bill wonders if they left without their American Express cards. Now, this uh, Morse code, this is from the story.
2: Yeah, well, the, the big difference is that the humanity is basically enslaved at the end of the story. Mm-hmm. This is where the movie, you always have to throw your hands up and say, all right, fuck, you win. Like, like I have no defensiveness anymore. But it makes sense that these things can't pump themselves. This is about as dumb as, I don't know, aliens attacking a planet that's 70% water when water is their weakness. (laughs) Which we talked about a couple years ago.
1: (laughs) Bill has all the confidence in the world that the trucks won't run him down as he walks out and tells the Green Goblin that the main fuel line is open. They fill all of them up to Hell's Bells. We don't get Highway to Hell, but we do get Hell's Bells. (laughs) And then they run out. A Big Mac truck pretty much chest bumps Bill as he starts filling the main fuel line. Funny story about this scene. King wanted Estevez to do this, and Estevez was like, you know what? I don't want to go up against a truck because I'm scared it will run me down. And King, being the director that he was, he got in front of the truck, and he directed the truck to push him, push him, push him. And then Estevez was like, okay, I'll go ahead and do it. So Estevez did it, and King called cut, and the truck driver told King later on, he said, boy, I couldn't see him. I was hoping I stopped in time. You, I could see him. He's not that tall. <laughs> oh, shit. I love guerrilla filmmaking so much. (laughs) So Bill starts filling the main fuel line, but Frankie Frazon he comes to take over. (laughs) Matt, we talked about him when we talked about Silence of the Lambs in the the Hannibal series.
2: Yeah, he's in all those movies. He's
1: in Manhunter 2, so Mm -hmm. yeah, the black guy lives. Yeah, Another Dino mainstay, because those were done by Dino, all but silent. But Bill doesn't stay, stay down for long as he puts a grenade in the gun car. And we hadn't heard from Connie in a while, and I sure didn't miss her as she's complaining about how much she hates anything with more than four legs. The Machines are done fucking around, though, as they mow down the Dixie Cup and its surroundings. Uh, we cut to later on that night as the gang gets spotted at a burger place, and the boy, of all people, takes it out for his dad. So the boy gets a line that says, this is for my father or something like that. <laughs> Just a terribly red line. Bill yells, adios, motherfucker, as he blows up the Green Goblin, and they get on a boat. When asked by Deke if everything is going to be all right, Bill replies, he knows everything's going to be okay. And a final subtitle tells us that a large UFO was destroyed by a Russian weather satellite that just happened to be equipped with a laser cannon and nuclear missiles. And Earth passed beyond the tail of the comet, Rhea M., exactly as predicted, and that the survivors are still survivors as credits roll on Maximum Overdrive. Matt, what the fuck is up with this final explanation?
2: Uh, The drugs wore off. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, what have I done? And how do I get out of here the quickest way possible? (laughs) How do I see myself out without being belted by tomatoes?
1: And they're going to an island, so what, the island's not going to have any more electronics on it? This was a common thing where we're seeing them just kind of, people get away and it's just so open-ended that, I mean, I wasn't craving a sequel to this movie, but... <laughs> <laughs> what a weird ending, Hi, huh, Adam?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I'm always down for an ambiguous ending. I'm always, you know, for, ooh, what could happen next, but this <laughs> just has not been the movie. <laughs> it's been making me clamber for a sequel. <laughs>
1: Let's get to our final thoughts. Scale of one to ten, what do we give maximum overdrive? Adam, I know you're chomping at the bit to get your venom out there, sir. Go ahead.
3: Boy, for a movie that for me has been 36 years in the making to finally get to see it, I can wait another 36 before I ever have to see it again. Uh, You know, coming into this, if I knew this was going to be just a silly, goofy, spoof type of romp, I probably would have had a good time. If I was hanging out, you know, if the three of us were hanging out together, drinking, watching this, doing like a MST3K type commentary, I could see myself having a bunch of fun. As it stands, sitting down on my couch with nobody even in my house that I could freaking Just left some of this off onto and watching this by myself, expecting King, doing King as only he can. Holy shit, what a disappointment. There's no scares to be had whatsoever. There's no frights whatsoever. The script makes no sense. The continuity makes no sense. The placement of things make no sense. At one point, we're back on a highway, like, suddenly on the other side of a diner, like, we're in the fucking village. And suddenly right beyond those trees, there's an entire town we don't know of. Wow. This thing, I can appreciate that it's got cult status because, yeah, this would be a midnight type showing where everybody's drunk, everybody's high, you're getting some jack-in-the-box mini tacos and having a good time. But if you're sitting down to watch this as a Stephen King horror thrill movie, (laughs) that is not in any way what this is. Yeah, I ain't going to watch this again, but I also know there's going to be some stuff worse than this. I won't say I'll never watch this again. If, If I'm in the right frame of mind, if I'm with people, if I'm at a job that'll... Let me have some uh, some adult gummies and shit like that. Maybe I could have a good time. But, wow. I have no idea how this got put out there as a horror movie from the Horror Master. And in that aspect, it fails on every single possible level. Oof. Maximum Overdrive. Yeah, slip that clutch because you never got out of fucking park. This is a three.
1: Three on ten. I can't say I disagree with a lot of what you said, but I do agree that you will see worse, sir. And I'm scared to see how low those ratings go. Matt, what about you? Point number one,
2: jack-in-the-box tacos don't sound like a good time. Normally
1: that leads to maximum
2: overdrive in the bathroom, number one. So I, I guess you could say for Adam, the truck stops here because he sounded like he did not have a good time, and I almost wanted to call him and say, Adam, are you dead? Because <laughs> <Like, laughs> <laughs> I, I, knowing him the way I do, I, I knew this was going to be a, a, a tall task for him to get through. So let me remind everyone, according to the movie's opening, we pass into the extraordinarily diffuse tale of Rhea M, rogue comet. So if Earth can pass through a comet instead of the other way around, and comets can go rogue, implying that they have sentient powers, then machines can become animated and lust for blood. By the end of the movie, we get a completely different explanation than what's offered, which is the greatest <laughs> summation of this movie. This, to me, is stream-of-consciousness filmmaking at both its best and its worst. If I had to compare this to a movie, and I mentioned Shyamalan before, this is Stephen King's The Happening.
1: Nice. And what
2: I, what I mean by that is it is someone... So far in their own headspace, but completely unsure as to what they were trying to make. Because King said, I'm going to scare the hell out of you. Shyamalan said he was going to do that with the happening. And we got hilarious results in both cases. Is this movie shaky? Yes. Is the acting stiffer than a faulty transmission? You're goddamn right. What does this have in common with the original short story? Proof of concept. That's about it. But if you're asking me, would I watch this again? Yeah, you're goddamn right. I'd watch this multiple times. Considering I've had to watch four hours of Stephen King's The Shining. I'll watch this in a heartbeat on a loop. So there's something to be said for what I classified as ego trip filmmaking and sheer enjoyment, but it's also crap. So I'm going to split the difference and give it a five. But if you're actually at the enjoyment scale, it's like an eight or a nine. Like I've seen this movie more times than I've seen Pulp Fiction. I'll say that just as a, a point of comparison. But it's my critical eye, my cat's eye, if you will, This is dumb and poorly made, but goddamn, this is not the worst Stephen King adaptation out there. And I don't even think it's the worst one we've covered yet.
1: Absolutely not. And I am exactly on the same wavelength, comment wavelength, I guess you could say, as Matt here. King has come out and said after the making of this that he made a quote-unquote moron movie. And chances are we'll never see him direct again. That is good for cinematic reasons. But God, did I get a lot of enjoyment out of watching it this time. I'm not going to go the Catwoman route and give it the spoofy 8 out of 10 score because I think that wouldn't be fair. This movie has so many, as we mentioned, continuity problems. So many things that are wrong with it, including pacing, including some of the decisions that King makes here are just downright stupid. (laughs) You're having ACDC score your entire film? That that is nothing but cocaine-infused logic. But I still, watching it this time and getting all those thoughts out of my head of is it as bad as its reputation, it really is. But at the same time, I can't take my eyes off it. And that's a good review I have of this movie is that when it's not trying to go into the relationship, when it's not trying to go character, I have a pretty good time watching this. But I can't in good conscience go higher than a five because that would be doing a disservice to our listeners, I I think, this, this movie it's not worth going out of your way if you're trying to find a good, scary movie. But it's also, if you're looking for good, trashy fun help, the three of us are planning to hang out sometime in the coming year. I could say that if we had a few drinks and we didn't have any ladies around, and it was just the three of us, I guarantee the three of us could sit, watch this movie, and laugh our fucking asses off. Oh, yeah. But how much fun are we going to have watching next week's movie? Now, Trucks was the short story. Trucks was adapted by King himself. Eleven years later, someone in Canada was like, let's do that again. And we get a TV movie next week. Matt, what are you expecting next week when we get to trucks?
2: Well, you're going to have to ask me because I'm going into this with my headlights off. This is a first time viewing for me. So who knows? I hope I have as much fun with it as I did with this, regardless of its own quality.
1: Adam, are you expecting anything better than what we got this week?
2: Yeah, I love
3: the Cars movies. This is falls in that franchise, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. I, 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 I um, gosh. Uh, well, you know what? The last time that I was, well, I definitely was not this hard on The Shining, but then we got into the TV movie, and I was the one that enjoyed that TV movie more than the two You years. were. So, I don't know. Revin, Revin, that's what I've been missing. I <laughs> See, <laughs> see what I think of trucks. Um. I, I mean, I didn't hate the concept of it, so I'm down for seeing what. You know what I hate is that now knowing what it is, if it tries to take itself seriously and fails, can I enjoy it even less? Because if I was to watch this again, I would, I, I would see the spoofiness of it, right, as we just discussed. So I'm worried that I'm going to be like, oh god, they tried to fix it and failed if it works. Ugh. So, yeah, like Matt, my headlights are off, but we'll see.
1: Yeah, I saw this one time when I was going through my massive... Okay, what what of King have I not seen? And this was probably in the mid-2000s, around that time, and i finally gotten around to it. And let me just put it this way. When I do the credits to these shows, I like to include quotes from both set of movies. When I did the intro to this one, all the quotes I have were taken from the trailer to the one we discussed today. <laughs> Then that tells you that there's just nothing memorable that I remember from that TV movie. But I'm going to go in and I'm going to say, okay, let's see if they take a different stance on it. We're not getting a coked out, massively drunk author slash director going behind the scenes. We're having somebody. It's from the writer of Poltergeist 3. It's got to be good, right? And uh, he also wrote V, the TV miniseries, Adam, that you and I like so much from the 80s. Oh, I dug that series. Yeah, yeah. He, he's a big writer on that. So I'm going in with as open a mind as I can, but I, I don't know if today's discussion is going to be more fun than next week's. But we'll see if there's something we can grab a hold of. But that does it for Maximum Overdrive. I hope it was worth the wait. I know it wasn't for Adam. Poor Adam had to wait 36 years to watch this piece of trash, and I'm sorry, Adam. <laughs> I am sorry. I hope he at least had fun oh, discussing it. Not- I <laughs> I hope you at least have fun discussing it with us.
3: If anything else, I know, I know we're going to have a good discussion about it. And you know what? Sometimes you don't get a chance to see a movie at a
1: time, but it would hit you,
3: and that window passed. So, you know what? I'm glad I finally got around to see it just for the discussion we could have.
1: All right. till next week when we discuss trucks. This podcast has called me an asshole. Thank you, gentlemen.
0: Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Don't you, don't you go walking away from me like that. You come back here, girl. You come back here. You listen to me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast. You want a war? You got one. Join us next week. For an entirely new review. Oh my God. And if you'd like to hear the boys talk about the film adaptations of Carrie and The Shining, please head over to www.bingemedia.net and click the Aftertaste tab. You can! We make you! The Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. Bailey, really? come here and look at these fools! Edited by Garrett. I ain't never seen a hero with his ass in the air like that. Voiceovers by Adam. Now you do And if you would be so kind, please take a moment and give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. It truly helps others find and discover our podcasts.
1: Little peep business take care of something you wouldn't understand.
0: The three men and a retrospective podcast is for review and discussion and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such.
1: All right, Goudreau, you back backup going?
2: Yeah, I do. And I also have a table of cocaine in front of <laughs>
1: me. I so can't wait.
3: So I've actually been able to go into this amazingly spoiler-free, for the most part, for a movie that came out, what, in like the mid-80s?
1: 1986.
3: Um, 86. I can't believe that I was able to survive this long without it. (laughs) Damn you. Would
1: would one of those people, would the the first uh, letter of their name be an L by any chance? No. No, no, no. All right. Who said, why are you watching this movie?
3: (laughs) (laughs) To me, I'm looking at this and I went, shit. I saw Legion. I saw that movie in a diner where angels come from the outside. (laughs) In fact, the diner looks just like this. I know where we're going, and I'm like, okay, let's see
1: how I feel when you get me there. Matt,
2: were you going to say something? No, I just said, oh, my God. Uh, I'm yawning because you mentioned the movie Legion.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So someone else is hit by a truck as that truck goes and takes out the salesman's car. And the salesman is taken out by the Green Goblin. Well, we think it's taken. he's taken out. We'll see later that he's not. Uh, my mom's calling. Hold on, guys. I'm going to ignore that call for now. Okay. Mom. <laughs> Boy, all the screaming this chick does in this movie.
2: <laughs> so we weren't covering Temple of Doom until next
1: year. <laughs> yeah. Actually, it's this year, Matt, because this will air in 2023, remember? <laughs> okay. Do <laughs> you want to say that line again? Except, like, we're, we, we co- I thought we were covering that later on this year.
2: I, I, I thought we weren't covering Temple of Doom for another six months. <laughs> there you go. <laughs>